Did you know that by some estimates, we need to invest two to three trillion dollars per year to meet the UN Sustainable Development Goals? The entire GDP of Italy is only two trillion dollars. Who's going to build that infrastructure? This is the Levers for Change podcast. My name is Jimmy Gia. Today's guest is Jamison Morell of Jacobs Engineering. As a Fortune 500 company, Jacobs Engineering is known for its infrastructure projects, and Jamison has been a driving force behind their sustainability intelligence practice. He helps corporate clients embed sustainability as a design factor for a better future. And now let's follow that red thread through the systems that connect futons and small businesses through the global players and the UN SDGs. So you've worked in a lot of different places like DHL, Deutsche Post, Bank of America. I, what I would like to start, though, is with one of the first places that you've worked with that had, I think, the best motto I have ever heard before, <laughs> which is yeah. the motto of death from within. Yes. Uh, so do you want yes. to explain a little bit about that and where it came from and what you were doing in that uh, organization? Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I left, uh, I left high school uh, with an engineering scholarship uh, with the U.S. Army. Um, after three years of engineering, I uh, decided to pay back that scholarship instead of continuing in engineering. And um, so I went in, enlisted in the Army, became a cook in the Army. As a cook in the Army, we, I was with the uh, 1st Infantry Division, and we followed mechanized uh, soldiers around in their, their tanks and their Bradleys, and we fed them. Um, <laughs> and on the, back, on the side and on some of the um, sort of the signage on our mobile kitchen trailers, we called them NK, MKTs. Uh, yeah, we had the motto, uh, Death from Within. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, nice picture of a skull and a crossed fork and spoon with a with a scroll below it uh, with death from within. Uh, yeah, but but we were good cooks actually. The the food was good. More for sure. More and bravado than uh, actuality. So we uh, we cooked well. And yet, going from there, you know, when you're in a chef and when you're in a kitchen, it's all about that supply chain. Right? <laughs> it it's is, all yeah. about that food that's coming and going. And so, you know, then from then on, you went up onto DHL to do knowledge management work, if I remember correctly. Uh, actually, no, I didn't. Uh, you skipped a step there. Oh. Um, I actually, uh, while I was in the army, um, I helped a friend with his futon business. <laughs> so we made we made futons, the the mattresses, and we bought the frames, um, and that actually gave me sort of a the supply chain perspective, because as a small business owner, um, you know, we're sourcing raw materials. We had a small little production shop, there's quality control. Then uh, we had sales and, uh, and marketing and the retail store. And then we actually did deliveries after work. <laughs> and then uh, we gave a, a lifetime warranty. So if we had defects, we heard about it. So mm -hmm. a bit of customer service there. And that sort of was my um, um, supply chain sort of process management. And then from there, I went to work. My first real job was with Seafirst uh, Bank in Seattle. Uh, and that was uh, absorbed by Bank of America on the East Coast, and which was then uh, merged with Nations Bank on the East Coast, and they became kind of the Bank of America they are today. Um, and there I was a process manager. So I owned the consumer credit processes from end to end. Um, and then product managers would run products through those processes. And so Kind of went from systems thinking as a small business owner and kind of a business business degree per se uh, into uh, into into sort of process management and seeing how how systems work that way. 
and uh, I left left Bank of America and I went to uh, Deutsche Post. Uh, Deutsche Post was doing a joint venture at the time with Lufthansa. It's called XPL, and it was fourth party logistics. And they wanted somebody to sort of document and help them uh, stand up this joint venture. So uh, from, you know, sort of uh, product development through sales channels to, you know, fulfillment uh, to delivering the, the different products and operations. And so we did that for about a year and then it was absorbed into uh, part of the privatizing of Deutsche Post and one of the brands they bought was DHL. So it was, we were, we were pulled into DHL. So and that's where I kind of got my logistics supply chain chops. So it started off with just the basic experience yeah. of delivering it without realizing it was called supply chain, yeah. all the way to then the formalizing of it within the large organization and understanding how it works. So how would you then describe supply chain, supply chain management today? Oh, boy. Uh, so supply chain, well, today, you know, I, from, from DHL, I came to work for an engineering firm. Um, and it's interesting working for an engineering firm because you work up and down the value chain. So the engineering firm I work for, Jacobs, you know, we service uh, the energy sector, the power sector, mining, chemical, manufacturing, uh, and then into, you know, electronics and technology, um, life sciences, you know, into food and ag, <laughs> municipalities, and then all the sectors that service the, you know, the, the cities we live in. And so my my view of the, of the supply chain has, has changed immensely, actually, from the logistics supply chain, which is more the movements of goods. Mm-hmm. So the warehousing and distribution and the, uh, the the transport of goods and inbound and outbound logistics to to more product categories <laughs> um, and then watching the products move up, up and down that value chain. And so uh, it's 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 kind of it's really interesting from going from financial services to, to logistics and then into an engineering firm, which you wouldn't think would be so involved in the value chain, but they are. So, you know, we, we do see from extraction and raw materials into finished goods into into uh into retail and then engineers get into the water and transportation and waste systems and so you get into the logistics <laughs> um and you get into the end of life the circular economy and so it gives you just a fantastic view uh of, of this kind of the global systems so so you see how all these systems have worked you've experienced mm-hmm. a number of these systems you see how these systems work do they work together <laughs> what are the cracks in between these systems that you have seen? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh, cracks in the system. Yeah. So another interesting aspect of working with an engineering firm is we work with, when we work with, with clients, in some cases, we're working at a sector level. So we'll be working with sort of macro issues with the energy sector or the power sector. And then it can go from there down to a, a specific company down to a specific product line or a region or geography or site. And so the, the, the cracks that I see are, are kind of a, the complexity is that the, the, the details are local and the decisions are made globally or, you know, regionally or globally. Um, and those are, those are sort of the biggest cracks I see right now, especially in the, you know, the area that I'm working with in, you know, sustainability and resiliency. Um, so for example, uh, a sector may have a, a water issue or a water opportunity, right? It's not always an issue or a risk. And then when you actually drill down to a specific site or a specific project, you know, maybe water is not an issue. Um, and so those are some of the cracks that I'm seeing now. It's at these different scales and these different granularity levels as it goes up. Yeah. Down. You touched on uh, sustainability just a moment ago, mm-hmm. and sustainability is a big part of that supply chain story. So how did you find yourself in the sustainability role and doing that as a career? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. When I was working with, with Deutsche Post DHL, the 
fourth party logistics was absorbed into into DHL as it is today. And I took on a role uh, of knowledge management. And so at the time, Deutsche Post had grown through mergers and acquisitions, and they had massive assets and people all over the globe uh, and uh, intranet and web conferencing didn't you know really exist at the time what years um, were these yeah this, just yeah, this would have been the early uh yeah early 2000s so yeah so spent kind of the 2000s at at deutsche post dhl and so in, in putting together a knowledge management strategy beyond you know sort of the collaboration and the knowledge assets and securing knowledge assets and sharing knowledge around the world part of that was business intelligence um, and so we were working uh, with with databases and different uh, ways to enrich data and then make that data useful to operations managers, sales managers. So kind of taking the financial data and making it useful by enriching it and allowing them to create a kind of a user experience, you'd call it this day, that they can make decisions with. Back in those days, it was pretty complicated. You know, you couldn't just call up Tableau or, you know, um, and uh, uh, so we actually were, were kind of building this thing. So we were presented with a problem in like 2006, 2007 of developing a carbon footprint. And that's where it started. The executive, uh, the CEO came back from Davos and said, hey, we need a carbon footprint. Um, because we had the business intelligence aspect, we knew where the data was. Uh, and so we actually came back after a couple of weeks and said, we can't do it because we track data on cost and quality. You know, how much did we pay? Do we pay the right amount? Did we pay for what we got? What we got? And for uh, carbon emissions and for greenhouse gas inventories, you need, you need quantity at the time. And you have to multiply that quantity by emission factors to get, to get what you need. And so long story short, we ended up um, developing some tools that could then estimate quantity based upon cost of goods uh, globally. I mean, this is, this is a massive company. And we, we did the first carbon footprint. At that time, the executive named an initiative uh, at the firm around carbon. And that then led to another joint venture uh, with some scientists that was called DHL Neutral Services. And so the idea was to bring expertise into DHL to advise the divisions on how to uh, measure and then develop plans to lower their greenhouse gas emissions. And that actually led to a Go Green program. It led to some of the first sort of long-term targets, which I believe, if I remember right, were set through like 2018 or 2016, and they, they hit them early. I read a couple of years ago, wow. um, but I already I already left for uh, for the engineering firm at that time. But when you talk about carbon, it leads you to energy and fossil fuels, and then that quickly leads you to water because a lot of energy is used to um, to extract, to pump, <laughs> to store, to uh, use water, and then treat water, and then discharge water, heat water, yeah. <laughs> um, et cetera. And then that usually leads to materials because of the items that are going into the water. And that leads you to a supply chain. And that's sort of the environmental side yeah. of sustainability. And then you start to recognize that there are governance models impacting um, the environmental decisions they're being making. And then you also start to recognize that there's social impacts as well. And that's where I think you were starting to see that sort of ESG, that environmental social governance coming out. Well, so, So. and and that seems like it speaks to the evolution of this, the notion of sustainability over the course of the last 15, 20 years or so. Uh, How would you describe the maturing of the sector, sustainability sector? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, the maturing of the sustainability sector. Oh, gosh. You know, in different sectors and different companies, I've often used the term that the, you know, sort of the fingerprint is unique. And so I think each company, and I'm mainly talking private sector, right? You know, publicly held companies, um, we can go to municipalities and, and yeah. government on another side, but I think I'll stick with kind of the private sector examples. The, each each company kind of has their own unique journey. 
Um, I call it sort of the sort of the maturity maturity curve or the business spectrum. And so a lot of them were driven by drivers related to um, you know governance and, and being compliant. And then that led to sort of some of the resource efficiency. So that's why a lot of them start with sort of energy. And then you had certain stakeholders that you had to tell the story to. And so in some cases, you had a, a sort of a dichotomy. You had uh, environment and, you know, in the early days, it was a lot of energy efficiency. And then you had different annual reports and such that are voluntary or involuntary. The involuntary one were more compliance and regulatory driven, which is where it started. And then the voluntary reports like the, the carbon disclosure project, um, the GRI index. And so started sort of developing some standards around that from a, from a story standpoint. Um, but it was still kind of split. And uh, meaning that at, at a corporate function, you could have sort of the CSR res- corporate responsibility for sustainability, but you could have these underlying sort of operation teams that were responsible for the outcomes. And so I've seen the evolution of sustainability is a lot of the voluntary reporting was optics and marketing, communications, uh, legal is where you'd see that based. And a lot of the outcomes that they were reporting on were in real estate and operations uh, and they were really driving towards sort of being not only compliant, but also saving costs by not by using less energy, which then, you know, they need to save water, they need to lose less materials. <laughs> and, and, and you also had sort of greenhouse gas emissions. I'm seeing those coming closer together now. And in some companies, they, they've come together and some of, some of the leaders and innovators that are out there. And in the companies that have come together, where is that effort being driven from? Is it top down or bottoms up? Both. Can you give <laughs> yeah. some examples or I stories? Sure yeah. Um, so you know, there's sort of uh, there's kind of the the trifecta out there of you know what's what sort of drivers move companies and and markets as you know be it political, economic, social. Uh, and the interesting thing with with a lot of the environmental and social governance of those things coming together, if you just take climate change as sort of a subsection of that, right? It's sort of driving all three. There's there's policies out there around greenhouse gas emissions. Um, there's economics around it as far as who's more efficient or if you have can increase your brand value value and then there's sort of the social aspect of who's your client who's the consumer what are, what are communities demanding um, and so in those instances depending on which sector and and you know the, it can be started by um, a sort of a real estate operations team that just wants to be more efficient and so they have cost savings and then they start to recognize they can tell the story around the um, the environmental and social impact of those cost savings. We're using less power, we're emitting less greenhouse gas emissions, we're using less water, and we're also, you know, there's also an ROI here. And so that's going to be one driver, sort of the cost savings piece, and that's sort of the, I I would consider that kind of the ground up, um, or the organic growth. And then it can be top down. In the early days, it was a leader, normally. It was someone on the executive team that says, hey, look, this is a priority, uh, and we're going to do it. And usually that priority was recognized as a market opportunity or an enterprise risk they needed to address. Um, And that's more the top down model. And so I have seen a top down <laughs> with little on the bottom where usually they lead with a strategy, um, they lead with, uh, with targets and initiatives, um, and, but their operations, uh, they, there's still the organizational change to go through to try to get their, their operations or their production to sort of match match that strategy, right? And I guess, are you, you know, it's good to see that in some companies are starting to converge. I'm sure that those are the leading companies, that they're not quite pervasive in that uh, situation yet. Do you have a sense of whether companies are more top-down or more bottoms-up? Are they lacking one or the other, or is it, does that really get into that individual thing that you're talking about? Yeah, each, each fingerprint is unique. Each fingerprint um, is unique. Yeah, and it, 
It also depends on the scale of the companies. If you get into more conglomerates where they've got multiple business lines, that can you almost have to treat each business line separately. And I see that confused now. You'll see some of these big brand names, and they'll have great sustainability stories to tell. But when you dig into them, you realize, oh, they've got multiple business lines, and those business lines have each have their own unique sort of story. Early on, you talked about when you get into some of these issues and topics you're talking about, you do it at the sectorial level all the way down to the regional and local level. So let's talk about that sector level to begin with, because that sector level isn't just one company. It's not one player. It's usually (laughs) multi-players. It is, yes. So since you're a client, Uh you're hired by one company to do a task, how do you have sectorial impact? How, How can you leverage that into a sectorial impact? An engineering firm, uh, we have sort of a building and infrastructures group, we have an advanced facilities group, uh, an aerospace and technology group, and then we have an environmental services sort of group, not to get into the nuts and bolts of an engineering firm. Um, and they're, you know, they're organized in the lines of businesses, and they serve these different sectors. Uh, and these different sectors do, do interlink. But if you're making a sort of go-to-market plan for those sectors, you need to understand what are sort of the the risks and opportunities in that sector. Um, and so we're discovering that by evaluating at a sector level, what are sort of the, the key or the material environmental and social and sort of governance risks in that sector, it then starts to help us prepare our services better. Because remember, our our role is to, is to take that investment from them and put that into that capital project. So as far as siting, site selection and permitting and, and, and design, um, how, do we, how do we then position our, our services in that sector, and so it's good to have sort of that sector sector level knowledge, and then it's interconnected. So since we work along the value chain, or that that business spectrum I, t- I spoke to earlier, where uh, an organization goes from energy efficiency to water and waste, and then they materials, and then they get into their supply chain. So they're looking upstream in their supply chain, looking at environmental and social and governance sort of risk in their key supplier categories well. And then they're also looking downstream at their product performance, <laughs> um, their product end of life, getting this sort of circular economy. Well, as an engineering firm, we're working upstream with those clients and we're also working downstream for the clients that are purchasing the product and sort of inheriting those externalities, right? Um, so you have so a we, we, get a nice, we get a nice view. And so if we are, the, the more we start to understand the sectors, then then we can start to work and sort of build capacity with, and this sort of gets into the, the, the sustainability intelligence unit that I work with, we start to build capacity with our, our account teams who work with specific clients in those sectors so they understand the nuances for that particular client. And many times in this conversation, we've talked about many, many broad topics, water agricultures, materiality, <laughs> yeah. and we're just kind of throwing them around yeah. at this particular point. Within a sector, do you see portions of the sector more attuned to sustainability issues than other companies within the same sector? Or again, is it just... Yes, random? wide variety, actually. So if I understood that correctly, so within a sector, yeah. is there a, a degree of sort of, uh, if I was to sort of index them or rank them, yes. there's a, a spread from... Yes. Um, yes, absolutely. That fingerprint is, again, unique, right, for each company, and it depends on where they're located, what markets they're in, what kind of key drivers, the leadership they've had, um, and how they sort of uh, been, been pushed to get into being more transparent to their sustainability and their resiliency. Um, and so I would say as an engineering firm, you know, we do these large projects, um, but we also, as sort of a value-added service, as I was saying earlier, we will work directly with our clients. And so I, we generally work with I would say clients in, within a sector that are 
are sort of at the the emerging end of sustainability, where they're still very much regulatory and compliant driven, and they're trying to get their head around what it, what are our material risks, how should we be mitigating those, who do we need to be transparent to, why should we be doing these reports, which stakeholders are are sort of pushing on us, and do we want to be transparent, and so we'll kind of help walk them through that. That's something that we can help to do, and as an engineering firm, we don't want to come in with radical sustainability designs because we could just blow away <laughs> the client's expectations. What they're really looking for is something that's, you know, they're looking at cost, quality, budget, and to make sure that it's compliant. And then we have other clients that are on the leader and innovative sort of innovator sort of range who want to be, you know, cost, quality, and, and, and uh, on time and, 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 and compliant, but they also want to factor in a lot more of what's the environmental and social impact, what's the long-term impacts of this, of this asset. And so we have to be prepared to work with both, help sort of push and pull some of our clients along when they're ready. And then also some that are there, you know, we're, we're sprinting to keep up with them. So when you start thinking about the distribution of maturity mm-hmm. to sustainability, right, would you characterize corporate America then as where's <laughs> global, the average corporate, corporate world, corporate world, yeah, cl- yeah. global corporate. Um, <laughs> do you think the average of this bell curve? Oh, gosh, good question. In the, a good zone, or is it still a laggard, and we're still trying need to mobilize and be cheerleaders? Oh, you know what? It's hard for me to tell because you know I I am a sustainability professional, meaning that I spend a majority of my time working on these issues, and it definitely feels like we're past a tipping point to where you know years ago I spent a lot of time developing the business case of why should we do these things, and now we're spent. I don't I, you know I haven't done a business case in a long time. It's really around, okay, these are your material risks. These are sort of the options you have. There's the trade-offs of those options. Um, and that trade-offs may include a business case, but we're, it's, you, there's a, they're going forward. That, that just feels like a tipping point for me. Um, and I would say uh, this, goes, this leads us back to supply chain. <laughs> so uh, as, as more and more of the sort of the major brands in the different sectors reach that leader and innovator space, um, space. So they've gone through energy efficiency. I'm just using the environmental side. They, you know, they've gone through their energy efficiency. They've got their water under control. They've got their materials under control. And they're and now they're starting to get into their supply chain. Well, that means the suppliers have to sit up and take notice. I think the, you know, the classic sort of case study out there is, is what Walmart's doing with their logistics. Not just their logistics, but also, the, you know, their suppliers and the supplier standards that they're putting on, you know, their, their gigaton challenge and stuff. So that's, that's sort of the classic of what a keystone species <laughs> can do to use some biomimicry sort of concepts. Yeah, and so you know, we've talked about what some of the, the leaders are doing, yeah. right, in terms of setting it and not just setting it, but also pushing what, what you're doing. What about the laggards? What do you see about the laggards? Are they just ignoring? Are they avoiding? Are they too busy to care? No. What have you seen? Um, I I think that on the laggards they just haven't um i would say a lot of the the key drivers on them just haven't pushed them into that space and they also or maybe haven't had a leader and so they're just their opponents are just riding the current is what i would say you know i i do i do speak with companies that are just getting started so to speak um and usually there's something that has happened a board member spoke up a customer has asked a supplier has asked, or there's some market opportunity that they recognize, because now I, I think you've got to be 
yeah, you know, I would say even the laggards are at least addressing sustainability in some way. Whether they're doing it in name or not. Exactly, But yeah. they, they have to pay attention. And that's a good to. point, Jimmy, because one of the things that when we're looking at a sector and we're looking at specific clients, we actually take the time to learn what are their values, what are the language that they're using when they describe items that are environmental and social and governance type risks. Mm -hmm. So, for example greenhouse gas emissions, you get into energy, yeah. <laughs> um, you get into water, you get into materials, you get into community impacts if you're using a lot of energy or your air emissions, and then you get into governance issues of how transparent do you need to be, how do you keep your greenhouse gas inventories, how do you, how do you uh, report those, right? How do yeah. you set long-term targets? We've got clients up in, in every sector. I can point to two or three clients that, uh, that we're working with that are doing, that are going through that sort of process, but they call it different things. Some it'll be business continuity, some it'll be enterprise risk management, some it'll be resiliency. Um, some don't want to use the word sustainability because it's been politicized where they're working, for example. But they're all dealing with the same underlying <laughs> risk and opportunities, right? right? So it's interesting. So we have to, if we're going to propose and to be their engineering services firm, we've got to speak their language. So, I mean, we spent most of this conversation so far talking about supply chain yeah. for all intents and purposes. <laughs> yeah. And obviously supply chain, it's material, enterprise risks, et cetera. Have you run into non-supply chain or less supply chain sectors? We talked oh, a little gosh. bit about banking. We talked a little bit. Yeah. Are they also dealing with sustainability in or, or are they the ones that are just coasting because they're not as... Uh, uh, no, they, they, they are mainly because, uh, well, the financial sector in, in whole is the one that is right now discovering that if they start to incorporate these sort of non-financial risks, the knock-on effect is they are financial risks. That's the part that makes me laugh. But what they considered in the past non-financial risk, if they, if they factor that into their portfolio and into their lending or insuring or their investing decisions, that they're, they're making you know, smarter decisions. But a lot of these are public companies themselves. <laughs> and right. they're looking for investment and they're, you know, et cetera. And then there's also this sort of, uh, you know, this hypocrite notion of if we're not practicing what we preach. Um, and then also I see, you know, the financial sector, uh, especially with the investors, they're competing for investors. So if they're institutional investors, they say, you know, hey, Jimmy, we make the best decisions, right? You should give your money to us and we'll invest it for you and, we, and we'll give you this return. And part of the reason we do this is this magic ESG work that we do. We've got the best algorithm, right? So they're also competing for it. But, you know, if they've got how many offices, they've got travel, they've got paper, I, I would actually say that their sustainability efforts and strategies um, are a lot different and challenges are a lot different. So I'd say, yes, we do work with financial sector, for example, or universities. And a lot of that gets into campus design, campus transformation, building transformations. How do you get into different? There's so many frameworks out there, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and how do you return your investment on that? Um, is it more expensive, less expensive? What should we do? And well, so, yeah. and, oh, and then I'll also throw in their, the financial sector in this example, they, they compete for the best and the brightest, right? And so who, who do you want to work for? And I think everybody knows that the millennials are mission driven at this point <laughs> and right. And that it matters. And then this Gen Z generation, you know, that's coming that's into college now, yeah. those are a whole different creature. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to non-supply chain sector, we touched on municipals and we said we'd ignore it for a moment. Oh, yeah. How okay. are government and municipals dealing with these issues? Uh, they are on the front lines of the issue because if you think about purpose of government, of government, right, and the the services that they supply to the citizens, um, and so a lot of the decisions that they're being driven with uh, is sort of climate action plans, 
uh, and understanding what are what are the risks to the the, the, the critical infrastructure transportation water right <laughs> waste and uh, and making sure that that the whole the whole commercial you know, movement of goods the industries that are in that municipality and so they, they very much are taking a we need to be prepared our, our our city or our municipality our regional government needs to be prepared and then you know in the US right now, the, the federal government, to, to a certain degree, hasn't led on this for a decade plus, <laughs> for many reasons, right? Through, through just being almost, you know, at a at a, a a dead set, they just can't do anything. And so you're seeing a lot of regional and state and local cities actually leading leading the charge on that. And so mm-hmm. that's from an engineering services standpoint. It tends to interestingly. Will advise some uh, many many municipalities actually on their different strategies, or or will help them um, if they have a strategy in place. Are they actually going to hit their target? Are they actually going to make the changes they need in time? You know, so a lot of sort of verification. But we mo- mostly with the different departments. So it can be the Department of Transportation, it could be the the water, the uh, you know the, the drinking water, the wastewater, um, you know the different waste systems that are out there to make sure that they are performing well. And that also leads into a lot of different financial discussions because different tax bases, depending on how regional and different governance are set up, can afford different things. And that's leading to a lot of interesting activity out there around, you know, if you're in, in the water, for example, and if you're dealing with wastewater systems, there's different cities and different watersheds. And if one city has a, a structure that they're not able to update their equipment and another one does, you know, how do you start to quilt those together so that it all gets updated? Right. So. If two neighboring cities share the same watershed, yeah. one owns the treatment plant, one <laughs> yeah, you owns can, the water yeah. filtration plant, then how are you going to share those resources? <laughs> yeah. Most of this conversation has really dealt with big public companies. Yes. What about those small to medium? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. Yeah, something that I wanted to work on was 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 with small businesses. So if you remember when we started this story, right when I came out of the army, I worked in a small business, and I just had this sort of hypothesis that I, I felt like these small local businesses that you pass every day on your street, they're actually the most sustainable business. In many cases, they know their supply chain. They they know who their suppliers are by name, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and who and who they owe money to. <laughs> yeah. um, they also know their customers. Um, they have uh, you know they have immediate decision making all over all of their operations. And so when uh, when I moved back to Seattle, actually I worked together, and you know um, I sort of got the coalition of the willing <laughs> to speak to say, um, and we came up with sort of a turnkey resiliency program for small businesses, and that was that was an incredible experience. Um, we actually piloted it with small five small businesses. In fact, I was just meeting with one of them that we did it with yesterday with Eco Balanza, and God, we learned so much. And it is true. They are they are the most sustainable businesses, but they also have the least amount of time because they're management team is also their operations team is also their sales team. It's all the same person, right? Or set of people. And so um, they, they get literally paralyzed because they're not exactly sure what they should address in their business. We, we really tried to help them kind of prioritize what they needed to focus on. And then we also realized that there's a lot of resources out there for small and mid-sized businesses. The challenge is they're all self-service. So, hey, you business, you know, busy small business owner, pause what you're doing and go and research this, <laughs> sign up for something, take a class, get wait a three months, letter. get another lane, realize you have the wrong information and then redo it. And I, I see so many instances where there's just all this this help out there for them, but they just they just can't quite access it. So, so it's kind of like overwhelming self-help. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, one of the businesses I work with, I mean, literally 
she was exhausted. She'd been working, you know, several days, you know, employee was out sick and there was, we were able, we identified that there was some rebates they could get from their utility. And all she had to do was log into her utility account and, and sort of do the application. And so I was, I was helping her and the password requirements, because it was a, you know, a public entity, you know what those are like, 10, you, you haven't never used this password in your life before, right? Yeah. And she literally like, I don't need one more password in my life. And she closed her computer and she left. And so finally, I'm like, look, just I'll make the password. I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll help you with that. And um, yeah, we did end up getting the, the rebate. Um, but it's just an example of being kind of overwhelmed. Around. So the larger plans, yeah, create the, the blueprints of yeah. the processes of different scaffolds that they could choose from. Yeah. And now the, the medium companies can choose from them. Yeah. These small companies, they're line of sight, so they're in some way sustainable to begin with. Yeah. But that feels counterintuitive, though, right? If you <laughs> read the news in the market, if you read yeah. the mass media, listen to various different things, it to me, it still feels like the... The message is we got to convince people to be sustainable. But yet, what you're telling me from practice is that these the fingerprints of them are all over the place. Yeah. Early on, we talked about the myriad of water, agriculture, risk management, ERM, this and that, just throwing <laughs> yeah. them around in all these acronyms, right? <laughs> like there was no tomorrow. And we talk about how they're all tied together, but at the end of the day, when you all tie them together, you're just describing everything. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so one of the hard things to yeah. get our heads, how do you know where to start? Oh my gosh. I don't know. Sometimes my brain just hurt. Um, <laughs> and that happened this week. Uh, Kevin Bacon, that's how you know it right? It's, it's uh, chaos theory and, and sort of the six degrees of separation. Um, and so if you, if you understand the systems and how they're connected, and then you realize you can't really impact the whole system, but you can impact the part of the system that you are touching. And so this gets back to that materiality assessment of what's material to that company, to that product, to that, um, that situation, and that some site, way, and, some and, that's and work the, on those. And that's right? the fingerprint of sustainability yeah. in each organization. Yeah. Right? It's also important to know not what, what you need to focus on so you can actually push back as well. Um, so right now I'm, I'm helping it's, been picking up in some of the work that I'm doing. I had smidgens of it in the past few years, but now it's becoming a theme with with quite a few of my clients where it's like, you know, we need to develop a policy on this and this is the decision we've made and some transparency to that policy. Sit down with the investor, sit down with your client, explain to them why these are the material things that you're working on and why the item that they're asking for you to spend a lot of time and, and money and resources on to do, is it material to your business in this situation? And so you're not, you're not going to do it. I can give a, you know, right now the one that I'm kind of struggling with, and maybe I have this wrong, but it's, there's uh, some of the large brands out there are doing the hundred percent renewable. And then they're turning to their suppliers and saying, we expect you to be hundred percent renewable too. Um, and then when I work downstream with, with those suppliers, it's like the mid-sized business, right? These are the big brands. <laughs> and so, uh, so for example, uh, be a big brand, we want to be hundred percent renewable and your supplier has manufacturing and I'll just pick Malaysia. And in Malaysia, that company, which is still a large brand has one production facility in Malaysia, but yet they're being asked to be hundred percent renewable there. And they don't really are prepared from their staff, even though they're a large company, to assess renewable energy options, power purchase agreements, how do we engage with the utility. And they also have multiple other sites in multiple other countries. And so we've been talking this over a bit. And then remember, I work upstream with the big brand doing the 100% renewable as well, right? Um, And so I'm starting to whisper to them saying, hey, I don't know if this makes sense. You actually have kind of the, the leverage here. 
what other suppliers do you have in that geographic location? You've obviously had the, the staff look at this. You've made your own 100% renewable. You know how to assess power purchase agreements and find these things. How can you come up with a mechanisms where you can go into a country or region where you know have lots of suppliers and say, okay, we are going to help you become 100% renewable because we're going to say, hey, or here's a path for you. We know the utility is decarbonization and carbonizing at this rate or not. <laughs> um, and we also know these regional sort of uh, renewable powers uh, um, projects are coming online. We'd like you to consider buying into these, right? It's, it's a little bit different approach than say, "Hey, we want you to be hundred percent renewable." Good luck, <laughs> right? It's not just and throwing like, it over the fence. Yeah, it's no, saying, hey, exactly. We'll and so, and so, I think the big brands are <laughs> are hearing a little bit of that, and I'm and and I'm also saying to the other brands, it's okay to go back to them and say, "Hey, look, we want to deliver the most cost efficient product we can to you," because mm -hmm. you, you know, obviously, you want <laughs> you want it on time, you know, for a good price, and 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 you want the quality there. And and if you want this to to this environmental and social factor around greenhouse gas emissions to be part of this, we can hire the staff or the consultants like Jacobs to, <laughs> to yeah. help us do this. Or why don't you just tell us yeah. <laughs> how we should do this? But our policy is that we will buy the most, uh, you know, we will buy renewable power when it's cost effective for us. That's cost neutral or we're saving some money. Otherwise, it may not be the best thing for us to materially invest in. We've got other issues here. We've got, you know, um, skilled labor risks, or we've got, you know, th th these things are a bit more important. Conflict minerals. Can we, can we, yeah. you know, assess our suppliers? And and yeah, you've got the hundred percent renewable, so help us. So that's an example of yeah. kind of pushing up and down the <laughs> the, the the value chain, the supply chain, finance person. These are teams of people that deliver that money. And, so. and for you, those are you know, again, it's everything is included. But what's the skill set that you? start with like the, the key skill set that you have in what you do and what you see your peers do that helps bring these system thinker i do feel lucky kind of stumbled through my careers into this role but the one thing that i think that that has allowed me to do what i do is to is to see systems um, i see red threads through systems and there are I, but at the same time, I need the people that can focus on the details, right? So I'm wandering, following red threads, right? Um, but I also work a lot with teams with very focused people that can deliver, um, you know, very complex computational models, simulations, energy experts, water experts, waste experts, um, social experts, you know, um, psychologists, communication specialists, you know, that uh, can kind of take what we're working on and actually deliver the detail um, and, and, and focus on it. And so it's successful teams have members that aren't alike. They think differently. They come from different backgrounds. And so it gets into the strength of many of these, um, these diversity and inclusion goals of it, you're a better company because you bring in so many different um, viewpoints where you can get easily get into groupthink <laughs> um, if everybody has a similar degree or you know similar thing and so um, so when it comes to sustainability I think that if you want to be a sustainability professional you can do it no matter who you are you just have to understand that if you're going to be a deep thinker or if you're going to be a technical person that focuses on accounting or, or legal or design then understand what are the sustainability components of that skill. What is the dogma of sustainability there? And then you're going to link yourself to other people in that team who also are sustainability professionals. And then you're going to build a better system. Where do you have ability to make decisions super fast? And where do you have to take it really slow? I have the ability to make decisions super fast within the engineering firm right now. The engineering firm is 
transforming itself and there's a lot of our organizational change and opportunities you know we're trying to go away from being a commodity and more into um, you know, sort of this connected enterprise and, and, and technology and uh, sort of enabling sort of the visions of our client and so within that space sustainability is a it's a powerful design tool to to develop systems and products and services and so we're moving really fast there across all sectors with many clients and so I'm able to to move really quick there um, where it's really slow I think would be in in in, in some of the areas where we sort we sort of stalled so the the pressure has changed or progress has been made just good enough um, and so the key drivers sort of fall away a bit. And so, you know, trying to, to be patient with some of the, the, the cycles. So a lot of you talk about it, these, so they're considered historically speaking, non-financial risks, right? <laughs> Even though we know because of more of the short term decision making in the private sector, and these are long-term risks that certainly impact the bottom line. And sometimes in those in the business cycles, we sort of stall out. And so it's the ability to have the patient to say, okay, we've got a good strategy. We've got a good plan. We understand we need to address that. It's just the wrong time. It's not, it's, the, there's a different material risks that are more pertinent right now to survive as a company. And so it's trying not to lose sight of those. It's trying to say, okay, you know, these are still a priority, but we're going to table them this year. Or um, I usually push um, those clients a little bit to say, hey, what, you know, what's the small thing we can do this year? So at least you can say, yes. We've set the objective for this year, and it's the smaller thing while we're investing money in other areas or you know other emergencies or something like that. Lastly, for people that are trying to enter into the sector, sustainability consulting, where would you advise them to begin? I would say go with your skill. That that you you can you can pretty much get any degree now or or study any sort of trade. Um, it doesn't have to be college, um, and you can understand how sustainability and system thinking applies to what you're doing. So if it's accounting or finance, great. If it's engineering, great. Uh, if it's carpentry, great. Right. Uh, if it's welding, great. Uh, we don't have enough welders. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, if you want to go, if you want to get into sustainability, go get a welding degree. How does that sound, right? <laughs> and then understand how the metals work, and then start getting involved in the projects that you're in, and some of this, and some of the decisions and system thinking with those projects, right? So you can really, you can really start anywhere. Which sounds like horrible advice, but what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you want to be a sustainability professional, then Find the skill or trade that will get you in the door of the company or the or the sector that you want to work in, the area that gets you excited, right? If you love running and you love running shoes, then what's going to get you a job with those brands, right, that you want to work for, right? Like here in Seattle, Brooks or something like, right? And then when you're in the door and you're doing that job and you're a sustainability professional in that specific skill that you're working in, right? And then, I mean, when I started, I started at Seafirst Bank as a part-time call service manager, right? I, or not even manager. I was I was literally like, hello, thank you for calling Seafirst. Can I have your 10-digit loaner line credit number, right? And I did it because we moved back to Seattle and I needed to pay the rent while my wife finished college or her master's. Um, but while I was there, I had come from, you know, being a cook. I had come from having a small business. And at the same time, Lean and Six Sigma and Kaizen, so all the management consultants were trying to force in into financial operations, the lessons they learn in manufacturing operations of how we can streamline, how you can cost cut. And so I quickly recognized that language. And so, you know, within a year, I think I was working on some of these teams. So you go from 
a 10 digit, you know, hello, how may I help you? And I'm being chewed out for my call wait time, you know, or I can't remember, you know, what the, what the metrics were. Um, and so I think it, it's sort of the same thing with sustainability. Understand what sustainability is, understand system thinking, understand what's, what's, what's new, get your foot in the door of, a, of, a, of an organization that you want to work for. And when your foot's in the door, find those people because the teams are in there and they're cross-functional teams and they're moving somewhere. And from there, you can, you can move all over the place. The biggest mistake I see you go into LinkedIn or you go into uh, you know, a job description on somebody's job board and you Google search for the term sustainability and you see the name is sustainability manager, sustainability director, sustainability analyst or something like that. It's like a front door of a crowded restaurant, right? <laughs> There's a lot of people that are just focused on that word. And so you can easily go around the back door and be a cook for a year <laughs> and move right into that sustainability job, you know? Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's my, my advice is study something you love and augment it. It's a dogma. And like what you were saying, if the financial professionals, accounting professionals, risk management, water, agriculture, waste, all, if all of these professionals have a sustainability story, yep. you can become an expert or start your career in one of those sectors and then move into sustainability really, really easily. Yeah. And I also, I, in the back of my mind, if I do my job well, I work myself out of a job actually. Right. So my goal is to be, to build the capacity for everybody in our firm to engage with, understand the, the sustainability and the system impacts of that. And if they're doing it, then you don't need a sustainability intelligent team helping them, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and I'm a little worried about Gen Z because... <laughs> <laughs> they're going to work out of a job. Yeah, go. I, I, I dare anybody to go and try to not sort their, their tray at a food court in front of a fifth or sixth grader today. Man, they will take you down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very nice. Well, Jameson, thank you so much for joining Thank you, Jimmy. You have been listening to the Levers for Change podcast, where we search for who has responsibility for what when implementing change. My name is Jimmy Gia, and the music is by Sean Hart. Please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes and share with a friend. Please visit our website at www.leversforchangepodcast.com for additional episodes, books, and other resources. Thank you again, and remember, when trying to change the world, search for your levers for change.